uh, I want to start off by letting you know that uh, today's sermon is going to be a little bit differently um, spoken to you than what I would typically do. Uh, today I want us to cover some, some deep theological implications of the Bible that affect the way that we live as believers. So we're going to talk about different things today and see uh, what the Bible says to us about God because what we believe about God affects everything else in our life as Christians. And so today... Uh, we are going to be reading just a few, a few verses, but really just spend time on one. But before we get there, uh, I want to I play a little game with us this morning. Now, you don't have to, you don't have to shout out, you don't have to answer aloud, uh, but I want you to think. Uh, is there anyone in here who is a book lover? You love to read books. All three of us. Great. Um, so, I'm an avid book reader. Um, I try to read a few books a week if possible. Uh, it's just something that I do um, in, my, in my time in the evening after our kids go to bed. Uh, I just love to learn. And so I thought, um, I thought about this as I was preparing. that There are some books that have been written in the English language that have such famous opening lines that many people could name them just from hearing the first few words of the book. And so I want to I do this a little bit this morning here to see if you guys can think of these. So the first one, I want to I see if you can name some of these books by their first lines. So this first one goes like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. How many of you know that book? Don't shout it out. How many of you know it? So a few of you. So the, the book is called The Tale of Two Cities, a book that I had to read probably in eighth or ninth grade. This next one uh, may be a little bit more difficult. It starts out by saying this. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Does anyone know or recognize that one? Not a single soul. It is the book Pride and Prejudice. The book Pride and Prejudice. And what about this one? Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. How many of you recognize that first line. So two, three, four, five. It is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. A second book by him. Now I hope we all know this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many of you recognize? Good. If your hand didn't go up, shame on you. As memorable as those other opening lines may be to those who are avid readers, there are no more important ones to be found anywhere in the human language than those found in Genesis 1.1. Now I want us to read, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in verse number 1. In verse 2 it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of waters. And in verse 3 it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was... And this is God's word for us today. God, we come to you in this place, Lord. We, we ask of you to illuminate these, these few verses. God, show us something fresh. Show us something new from your word. Help us to not, not count out uh, this familiar passage, one that if any length of time in church we've known. But God, help us to see some very important and deep theological implications for our life. And I ask that you would be magnified and glorified through today's service. In Jesus' name I pray, 
Amen and amen. And the very first few words of the Bible, we found so many foundational truths about God that affect our lives. The first one that I need us to understand is this, the centrality of God. We see the centrality of God right out of the gate in the first four words of the Bible. It all starts and is significant that the Bible begins with God. This shows us his centrality. In the beginning, God If there is one thing the Bible tells us right out of the gate, it is this entire life is all about God. This entire life is all about God. Do you know, I I am a a science buff. Um, I love science. And one of the things that I have learned uh, in my many years of, of studying different types of science, taking all the science classes that I could, I learned that our universe is what scientists call a heliocentric universe. Helio meaning sun, meaning that our, our, our sun is the center of our universe. In our solar system, everything revolves around the sun, all the planets, the moons, the stars. The sun gives light and without it, nothing would live. The sun is central to our universe and everything revolves around it. Now, for some years, people thought that the center of our universe was actually the earth and that everything revolved around the people on the earth. And that caused so many problems that were never able to be solved by scientists. Why? Because they had to come to the understanding that the earth was not the center of the universe, that the sun was. Now, one of the big problems people have today is that they have made the same mistake about the spiritual center of our universe. We, we tend in our sinfulness to become egocentric. Ego meaning I. Everything revolves around me. We want God to revolve around us. We want a Bible that revolves around us. We want a religion that revolves around us. Well, guess what? I have some fantastic news for us this morning. Life is not an egocentric enterprise. It's a theocentric one, meaning that God is at the center of our existence. He is like the sun of our universe. That's right, amen. God is the one that everything revolves around, not us. That's why Moses penned the first four words of Genesis saying, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Do you know, back in in the 80s, at some point, uh, Pastor Rick Warren wrote a book that became an instant bestseller. It was a book titled, The Purpose Driven Life. Now, there are many people in the theological circle that dislike various things about that book. But I will say one thing that I loved most about it is that it had probably one of the best opening lines of a book ever written in a Christian circle. And it gets right to the heart of the matter. The very first few words of the book start out by saying it's not about you. It's exactly how he starts out the book. It's not about you. Things do not revolve around us. What we think, what we want, what's most comfortable or best for us. Just like there are a lot of things in the earth that didn't make sense until we realized that the sun was the center of it. There are a lot of things in our life that will never make sense or we will never get right in our marriages, in our relationships, in our families, in our jobs, in so many areas of life. Until we understand that life does not revolve around us. 
We'll never get things right in any of those areas of life until we put God back at the center where he is supposed to be. The centrality of God. The Bible also teaches us here in the beginning passage of Genesis that we have a triune God. Right out of the gate, it tells us something that we have to know about God. He is one God. He is a true God. And we will later find in his word many other things, but there's something else about him that we begin to find out early on here in Genesis chapter 1. And it's this, that there is plurality to God, meaning that there are multiple. For example, the very first word that the Bible uses of God here in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, the fourth word of the Bible is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. Do you know the the word Elohim is actually in its plural form, meaning it is speaking to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the word Elohim. If you jump down to verse number 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 2 speaks to the Spirit. This is God, yet somehow distinct from the first person mentioned. And then if you were to jump down to verse number 26, we see this. It says, and then God said, let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Interestingly enough, the plural form is used three different times here. Us, our, our. It is almost as if God is having a conference amongst himself. And that is indeed what he is doing. For right here in the very first words of the first book of the Bible, we find telltale signs of one of the most important things that we can learn about God in the Bible, and that's that he is a triune God, a triune God. Now, triune means three, yet one. I'm going to say it again. Triune means three, yet one. Three, yet one. And we find this fleshed out over the course of the entirety of the Bible. Now, I will say this. Um, Some people in Christian circles are very quick to point out the fact that the word Trinity is never found in the Bible. And that is absolutely correct. The word Trinity is not found in any English version of the Bible because it was not there in the Greek, the Latin, or in the Hebrew or the Aramaic. But, but, the teaching of the Trinity is found throughout the entire Bible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Bible strongly and clearly teaches us in Deuteronomy 6, 5 that Yahweh is, is God and he is one God. That there is only one God. It also teaches us very clearly that that only God exists ex- eternally as three distinct people. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You know, Jesus calls God his Father and God calls Jesus his Son. Yet not only is the Father God, but John 1 makes it very clear that Jesus is also God. And here in Genesis 1-3, we read of the Spirit of God, whom the New Testament tells us is God, and yet is also a distinct person as well. There is no small matter here in speaking about the Trinity. The Christian belief in a triune God is what separates us from all other world religions that are known today. Many religions believe in some sort of God, but only Christians believe in a trinity who brings about salvation. God the Father loved each and every one of us 
so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to save us so that God the Holy Spirit could actually come and indwell inside of us. God the Father sent God the Son so we could have God the Spirit within us. Do you know no other religion in the world believes in a triune God? No other religion in the world believes that God the Father sent God the Son to give us the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the single most famous verses in the entire Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting or eternal life. It's the most basic, most, most well-known verse there is on salvation. And yet, who is this Son? God, the Son. The second person of the Trinity. God the Father gave God the Son so that we might be saved. And right there, in the most basic verse on salvation, John 3.16, you've got to have the Trinity in order to bring about salvation. You have to have the Trinity in order to bring about salvation. So, it is important that we recognize this truth. Do you know, the, this is not just a matter of believing some doctrine that I, as your pastor, stood before you and said was important. The Bible says that the God who really saved you is a triune God. Now, I want us to think like this for just a moment. Imagine you were in trouble. Imagine you were in trouble and you had to call 911 and the police were on their way to save you and you ask the, the operator of all the cars that are coming, how will I know it's them? How will I know it's the police? And the operator's like, well, they have a black and white car. They'll have lights on the top of it that will flash red and, and, and blue and, and when the guy gets out, he will be wearing a uniform and on that uniform, he will have a badge and that's the one that you're looking for. That's the one that's going to save you. So it is with the Bible. The Bible tells us of all of the gods and religions that we will encounter in this life and yet there is one God who will save you and he is a triune God. There is one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's something that we must know because it brings, it brings about spiritual implications in the life of a believer. If we don't know that we have a, a, a Father, a Son, and a Spirit in our God, then we can't fully understand salvation. He is the one who brings salvation. He is the one where it is found. So we need to learn to say with early theologians that say, when I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Spirit. When we talk as Christians about God, we need to know that we're speaking of a triune God. So watch for the doctrine of the Trinity this year as you begin to read your Bible. Watch where it is found because it is taught on page after page after page, not just here. So we saw the centrality of God. We saw the triune God. And next we're going to look at the creator God. The creator God. This is probably one of my favorite parts that we're going to talk about today. Do you know what, what the Bible says about this triune God? What he did? I want us to look back at Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning God created. We're going to stop right there for just a moment. God created, it goes on to say, the heavens and the earth. He's the creator God. He made everything. You know, John 
The Gospel of John, chapter 1, 3, speaking about Jesus Christ, says this, that all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He made everything. Everything that has come into being, that is everything that has been created, God created, is exactly what the Bible says. The only uncreated being is the one who created everything. The only uncreated being is the one who created everything. Meaning, he himself, God, never came into being. He himself has always been. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created there comes from the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A. And it means to initiate something new. It means to initiate something new. As opposed to just fashioning or modifying something that was already in existence. Now, I want us to, to see something here. Do you know that word created? The Hebrew word bara is only ever used in speaking of God, never of man. In the Bible, when it says that man built or man created uh, something, as we'll see with Noah in the ark, that word is a different Hebrew word. To initiate something new was only spoken about of this God. And the doctrine that theologians call creation or ex nihilo, meaning that it, it, something came out of nothing. Sounds fantastic, right? The creation account, the way that God spoke and things came into existence. I read, I read Genesis and I often have this thought, it is fantastic. But do you know what the alternative to that is? What is the alternative to creation? And it's this, that everything just arose out of nothing. Nothing on its own. There is an actual belief by materialistic scientists, as, as though I like to call them. Do you know... Uh, does anyone in here know uh, the world-renowned physicist by the name of Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking was an atheist. He wrote so many pieces and books and articles. He taught in, in the schools uh, as a college professor uh, to disprove God. At the end of Stephen Hawking's life, uh, Stephen Hawking passed away as an atheist. He had no belief in God I love, I, re I read a book probably my first or second year in college by Stephen Hawking, and it's one of his best-selling books called The Grand Design. The Grand Design. And he says this, it's going to come to the screen, that the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists and why we exist. This, this was Stephen Hawking's belief. This is the belief that atheists take, that something came out of nothing. Spontaneous Christian or creation. That means they believe that creation just occurred in an instant. There was nothing, and then all of a the sudden, there was a big bang, and bam, creation appeared. Now, last week, I read an article where a Christian who was an atheist said, I just didn't have enough faith to keep believing that way. People make fun of Christians for believing in a God who created the universe, but their alternative is that it just arose out of nothing, and that's supposed to be more intelligent. 
Even the title itself of Hawking's book, The Grand Design, I find ironic. As I sat and I read it, as I was putting this together, listen, if indeed, as as Hawking says, that the universe just arose out of nothing and created itself, then there was no grand design. None. There was no designer. There was only accidents and chances, and somehow something arose out of nothing. But we must understand how important the belief of creation is. The, the, the belief about the doctrine of creation means everything, one way or the other, because a belief has a consequence. Every belief that we follow has a consequence. Do you know that if God created us, then we are his? We belong to him. It is not my body, my choice. Your body is God's. If God created you, then your gender is not some random decision. And, and, and you are assigned that gender by your creator, and to reject it is to reject one of the most fundamental things about his purpose for your life. If God created you, if God created me, then we are not insignificant. No matter how much people or circumstances try to make you feel that way, I love what David, knowing that God made him, said in Psalm 139 when he said, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. You know, if if God made you, his works are wonderful. Therefore, you are wonderful because you are made in the image of God. You know, if God created you, then your life and every life has meaning. It has purpose. You know, on the other hand, if God didn't create you, if every one of us is merely here by some evolutionary accident, then you and I have no meaning and no purpose whatsoever. There is no reason. If it happened the way that Stephen Hawking explained, then there is no reason to respect any life at all. There's no reason to observe any kind of morality if that's the way that life came. There's no reason to refrain from killing. There's no reason to refrain from injuring others or to even seek a purpose of life if it happened by some blip on the map. Do you know this is really scary to think about that there are people that say that there is no purpose and in no purpose there is no godless And no randomness in our universe. This is not just the words of your pastor here. But these are actually the words of atheists. People who died believing that there wasn't a God. Another atheist that I have had to read and study in school. Is a man by the name of Bertrand Russell. He said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. This is an atheist who is saying this. What you believe What I believe about creation has consequences, and that's exactly why some today are doing everything that they can to reject the concept of God as the creator. I mean, they're they're even removing it from schools. Schools in the public school system can't even teach on creationism anymore, but they can teach evolution. I mean, it's happening all over the globe. Fast, it is happening all over the globe. There are some countries that that teachers are thrown into prison and beaten just for speaking about creation from from the perspective of a God making it. 
But here's the thing. The simple fact is, is that there are people who do not wish to be accountable to God. In fact, their disbelief is not even something that's based on science. Because there are thousands of scientists around the world who still believe in God and who have strong evidence that points to the fact that there is an intelligent designer. Their disbelief, however, is based on the fact that they do not want to be accountable to God for morality. They do not want to be accountable to God for a lifestyle. Again, I will tell you, these are not just my thoughts. Friedrich Nietzsche, has anyone ever heard that name before? He was an atheistic German philosopher who wrote in the late 1800s that we deny God, and in denying God, we deny accountability. He said this before he died. What he wrote there is exactly what is behind materialistic scientists. Those who accuse Christians of being prejudiced in our view that there is a God. But if they were honest, if we had them in a room right now with an opportunity, they, if, if they honestly would admit they were prejudiced too in their own views. So make no mistake, what we believe about the beginning is no small issue. What we believe about God as a, as a triune God that everything in this life is central to God. All of those things are no small issues as, as believers. It affects everything else in our life. Do you know, the Bible makes it very clear. It leaves no doubt about it. It settles the very issue in the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. You know, there was much, much more which God reveals about himself and his word. But I want us to look at one more thing that it shows us in the early pages of Genesis. We've looked at the creator God. We've looked at the triune God. We've looked at the centrality of God. But last and certainly not least, we look at the redeeming, the redeeming God. We're going to jump next week into Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at the story the account of the fall of mankind. Look at Adam and Eve. And you will see in Genesis chapter 3 when God is judging Adam and Eve and the serpent for their disobedience. We, we jump to verse number 15. Actually, you know what? Just turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 3. I'm just going to read starting in verse number 15. And it says, and God is speaking here, and it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and you shall bru or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's speaking about Jesus here. The serpent is whom Jesus is talking about. In other words, Jesus or God is saying to the serpent, you will hurt him, but he will crush your head, and you will be totally defeated by him. This is what God is saying. He's already talking about right now, in this very moment, what, what theologians call protevangelium. It's going to come to the screen. I want you guys to see it. Protevangelium. This is a Latin word meaning first gospel. This is the first time in the entire Bible, three chapters in, that we're seeing the gospel for the first time. God is telling the world in this very moment of time that though sin has entered, he will send somebody to reconcile. He's talking about Jesus here. And in this very second, 
The indication that we first receive is that God is going to send someone of the seed of Eve. In other words, from the race of mankind. He's saying you will crush the head of the serpent who has deceived man. He's saying you will have victory over him. He's saying you will put man back in a right standing with God. And so, after Adam and Eve leave the garden, in Genesis chapter 5, we begin to see these genealogies that appear in Scripture for the first time. From Adam and Eve, to Seth, to Enosh, to Methuselah, to Noah, to Shem, to Ham, to Japheth. But why do we see these genealogies? Why are they there? You know, the genealogies appear early on in Genesis and other places in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament because those genealogies show us that the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 was coming to fruition. He was showing over and over and over again that this is coming to pass. Genesis 3.15, that the seed, the offspring of Eve was indeed producing someone who was coming. Someone who was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 and all throughout the Old Testament. Do you know in, in Genesis 12 when God told Abraham that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through his seed. Abraham was the seed of Adam and Eve. In Deuteronomy 18.15 when Moses told Israel that one day there would be a prophet just like him that would come. That he would be greater and that they must listen to him. They were talking about Christ. And in Psalm 110, when David said that there was coming one who would be his Lord, and yet somehow his son, he was talking about Christ coming from the line of David. And Isaiah even prophesied in chapter 53 that the one coming on whom the Lord would lay the iniquities of all of us upon him. Speaking again of Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, these scriptures are pointing forward from this protevangelium, this first gospel, towards the someone who was coming. So Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament opens with these words, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the fulfillment of the first gospel. Jesus was the one whom all of these genealogies and prophecies pointed to. Jesus was the one who Satan would be defeated by. Jesus was the one who would buy us back. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not come to earth just to be a great teacher though he was that that's not why he came he did not come just to sympathize with us though he did he came to do so much more I love what Jesus said in his ministry when he said the son of man has come to give his life as a ransom for many you know, Jesus came to earth. God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, through the, the virgin birth, 100% real human being, the seed of Eve, to fulfill the promise of Genesis 
lived his life. He ministered. He went to the cross. Satan had his way with him. He was tortured. He was humiliated. He was killed. But as bad as all of that was, Satan didn't get the victory. Satan did not get the victory. He bruised his head. It says that that Christ crushed the head of, of Satan. And Christ's heel was the only thing that was bruised. And after that, bearing our sins in his body, the seed of Eve, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, fulfilling scripture and saying, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And just like God promised, just like God promised, the head of the serpent was crushed by the seed of a woman by the seed of Eve. So now every one of us who follows Christ is forgiven for our sins. We've been reconciled with God. And we live forever in heaven, walking with God in the cool of the day, just like he originally wanted in Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden. Thanks to God that there was a way. That's why we read from from Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning, God. The first promise is what the rest of the Bible is about. How mankind fell into sin. But God raised up a people. He taught them. He prepared them for this promised one who would one day come and give us victory. If, if you don't get that, then you really don't get what the Bible is all about. In my almost 14 years of ministry... I've heard so many people say to me that the Bible is just a bunch of random stories and verses. I've talked to so many people. So many of them saying that it never really makes sense to them. Because they're missing that there is one unified message that runs from beginning to end. And it's that God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2. We ruined it with sin, Genesis 3. But God promised a redeemer that would make it right again, Genesis 3.15. And that someone was Jesus. We will see this whole story unfold page by page. But what we've got to see is this is not just the story of the Bible. This is the story of our life too. The story of our life. God made us to know him and to live with him forever. And we mess that up by sinning. We rebelled against God just like Israel. But God still loved us enough. His love was so good. His love was perfect that he sent his son to die on the cross to save us, to put us back in a right place with him. And just like some people see the Bible as a bunch of random stories because they don't know how it all fits together. So many of us see our life the exact same way. 
it doesn't make sense because it doesn't all fit together. We see the events of our life as, as just random things. We see our feelings as just random things. I don't, or I wanted to do this and I felt like doing that, but there was no real consistent meaning or direction in our life. You know, it never really makes sense to us. This life never makes sense until we see how it all fits together. why I believe wholeheartedly that that's why we have this book so that we can see how our our life fits together through creation through the bringing about of salvation with the triune God that God is central to everything this this book points us to about what our life is supposed to be about and it shows us that that God is supposed to be the center of our life But how often, how often do we get out of orbit? How often do we try to go our own way? Maybe there are people in this room right now who are in that place. They've tried to go their own way. They've gotten out of orbit for just a moment. I have a question. How's that been working out for you? I don't mean to be crass, but it's an honest question. How is it working out for you? It hasn't been, has it? It hasn't been, been working out. Why? Because it never really works out until we put God back where he's supposed to be. It doesn't, it doesn't work out until God is the center of life as the sun is the center of our universe. God is to be the center of our spiritual universe. And we're able to do this when we follow in the footsteps of Christ. Things will never come together for us. Things will never make sense in our life until we get back to the meaning of the very first words of this book. In the beginning God. Let's pray. God, we we come to you right now, Lord, in this place, and we just thank you. We thank you for all of these truths that are just in the the first portion of your word. God, I I think about and and attempt to to fathom what Moses uh, must have encountered when he saw you. God, when he, when he was inspired by your spirit to pen these words, God, what, what must he have been thinking? But God, I, I sit and I, I ask of you now, Lord, to continue to press upon us these, these truths about you, that the things will never be right unless you're central. That God, we must believe in what your word teaches us about, about, your, about you, about, about the Son, about the Spirit. That salvation can't come unless there's a trinity. God, I pray that, that we would understand creation. 
not, not from the, 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 the standpoint of, of trying to argue against people because we know that more people are, are won by experiencing love and joy and peace than those by, by theological arguments. But God, I'm, I'm asking of you right now to help us to understand these truths, help us to apply them, help us to live our lives according to them. And when we go from here, Lord, help us to be a better representation of you. God, I've asking, I'm asking now for strength, for courage, for boldness as we depart from here. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.